Warning, this episode contains spoilers and strong language. They said we're gonna put a play together Though we don't know yet what it's about We'll let everybody be in it So that there's no one left to be in the crowd No, you think I'm wasting time here Not sculpting up an image to play This is my last letter Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of Schumacast, a podcast exploring the films of Joel Schumacher. I am Noel Thingwall, and joining me as always... Angel Tusa, hello. How are you doing, Angie? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. It's going to be interesting to finally get this project rolling. Yep. And we are here tonight to discuss the 1974 TV movie, Virginia Hill, Mistress to the Mob, also known as The Virginia Hill Story, which was Joel's directorial debut. Mm-hmm. Now, Angie, had you ever seen this movie before? No, I didn't even know it existed. Had you ever heard of the actual character Virginia Hill before? No, this was all completely new to me. Yeah, and same here. <laughs> I did read a biography on Virginia Hill, which I'll probably get into more later in the episode. You were on the I Hate Love Remakes episode of Scarface. Yes. And I read the book that that was based on where it's a loose adaptation of Al Capone. And what's fascinating about the Virginia Hill story is her and Bugsy Siegel and that generation are all the people who came in right after Al Capone left. Oh, okay. Or right after he was put in jail for the tax evasion. Gotcha. So it's interesting how, like, without even intending to, I basically gotten a sequel now. (laughs) (laughs) Continuation of a story, yeah. And I hate stories about the mob, so I've learned so much about them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's never really been a genre that's appealed to me too much. Mm -hmm. I did enjoy the 80s Scarface, but in general, I'm not that big on watching criminals do bad things. Right. I just find them all assholes and I don't care. Right. Scarface was easy because it was just so blatantly a villain story. Yeah. But I think it's interesting just kind of learning about the actual mechanics of Mm -hmm. how they ran their operations, how the Chicago and New York were always colliding, how they were both trying to take over LA, how they were both trying to set up in Vegas. There's a lot of interesting stuff in there. It's just, I Mm -hmm. don't want to live in a country where that's still happening. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And getting into the actual production, as we mentioned in the pilot while working on Sleeper, Joel was encouraged by Woody Allen to start writing scripts as a way to better his chances of getting to direct his own movies. And Sparkle and Car Wash were his first two spec scripts that he wrote. And while they did quickly sell, they took a few years to get made. And the producers of neither one offered Joel the chance to direct them. Because, mm. again, completely inexperienced, came out of a fashion background, had never done any technical work outside of like art direction or costume design in a film before. Sure. However, those two scripts caught the eye of an executive at NBC. I believe it was Deanne Barkley, who was one of the executive producers of this. She offered Joel a pair of TV movies to direct. One was a project that they already had sitting around, and the other one we'll get to soon, and that was Amateur Night at the Dixie Bar and Grill. Okay. So this not only marks Joel's directorial debut, but as he also rewrote the screenplay, it became the first of his scripts to be produced. So he's debuting as a writer and director all at once. (laughs) Now, the other credited screenwriter and the one who provided the initial story is Julene Compton, a former Broadway actor who had an interesting, if sporadic and now largely obscure career in film. 
In the 60s, she wrote and directed a pair of indie films, Stranded and The Plastic Dome of Norma Jean. In the 70s, she was the initial writer on a pair of TV movies, Virginia Hill and Women at West Point. And in the late 80s, she popped up again, suddenly directing a teen girl western called Buckeye and Blue. Definitely a recurring theme there. <laughs> yeah, and it's like weird her credits. It's like she does these two things in the 60s, disappears, does two things in the 70s, disappears, <laughs> and then in like 1988, boom, another film. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and since then, she's moved to New York and continues to run an off-Broadway theater called Century Center for the Performing Arts. So the film is executive produced by, again, Deanne Barkley, Howard Rosenman, and Robert Stigwood for the production company RSO, which stands for Robert Stigwood Organization which also produced Killer Bees, Sparkle, Saturday Night Fever, Grease, and Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Hey, I like that movie. <laughs> and the Killer Bees connection do not end there. Okay. <laughs> of all the films that he worked on as a costume designer, this has the most connections with Killer Bees. <laughs> but we'll get to that in a second. So Howard Rosenman is worth mentioning because he not only worked with Schumacher as a producer on Killer Bees and Sparkle, but he was also the co-writer of the story for Sparkle, as well as producer of the remake. Okay. And notably, he's also the producer of the original Buffy the Vampire Slayer film. Hmm. And he's the one who's notoriously been trying to get a remake of the film made without Joss Whedon. Ah, okay. And that's worth mentioning because it was arguments over that that inspired me to create a podcast called I Hate Love Remakes. <laughs> <laughs> it all comes back around. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So additional people returning from the Killer Bees are the composer David Shire, a long-lived and prolific composer and conductor in Hollywood whose credits include Short Circuit, Return to Oz, and most recently Zodiac. It's a big jump there. <laughs> yeah. Cinematographer Jack Wolf, who just go. basically did a lot of TV movies, and mm -hmm. wardrobe supervisor Barbara Siebert. So yeah, again, interesting that like there's a bunch of holdovers from Killer Bees, which again, I believe was produced the same year. So they might have just gone straight from that to this. Right. And that was another TV movie, right? Right. And that one was actually over on ABC, a rival network. Oh, okay. But I'm wondering if maybe he like did Killer Bees as a favor to get this, if this happened as a result of the connections he made on Killer Bees. I don't really know which yeah. one was filmed first. Right. I mean, it does definitely seem like there is some kind of connection there for sure. Among all of the interviews I've found with Joel Schumacher getting into his early career, he never talks about Killer Bees, nor does he ever talk about Virginia Hill. So I got no information mm. straight from him. Gotcha. He talks a lot about Amateur Night at the Dixie Bar and Grill, but not Virginia Hill. Okay. <laughs> Maybe it's not one that he has too many fond memories of. I don't know. Mm. We'll see. The on-set producer was Aaron Rosenberg, who largely did B-movie westerns and crime flicks through the 50s and 60s and the TV series Daniel Boone. <laughs> And Virginia Hill was one of his last works before he passed away in 1979. Hmm. And then I do have a couple of other connections between this and a couple of other Joel Schumacher films. Okay. The production executive, Michael Ratchmill, will go on to become a Hollywood producer, and he'll be the producer of Joel's Flatliners. And then script supervisor Hope Williams also worked on Bloomin' Love and Prisoner of Second Avenue and will also do The Incredible Shrinking Woman. So neither of them are like prominent names, but it's just interesting to kind of see a connection there, especially mm -hmm. Hope Williams, because she's kind of that bridge between the costume designer movies and even his feature debut. Right. And then in later episodes, I'll save for the end of the episode, like box office business and release and all that stuff. 
But there's two reasons why I can't on this. One, because Box Office Mojo only goes back to 1982. <laughs> and two, this was a TV movie of the week, not a theatrical feature. Right, exactly. Like, they probably didn't even track ratings as much back then either, I wouldn't think, to some extent. They did, but I don't know how well. Right. However, I did find out what all was airing that night. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> So there were only three TV networks at the time, ABC, sure. CBS, and NBC. The Virginia Hill story ran on NBC on a Tuesday night, November 19th, 1974, between episodes of Adam 12 and Police Story. All right. So it was a crime night. Uh-huh. And against it on CBS, which I'm guessing was what actually drew all the ratings that night, was a new episode from the third season of MASH. Yeah. yeah. Titled, <laughs> There is Nothing Like a Nurse. <laughs> And on ABC was their TV movie of the week, It Couldn't Happen to a Nicer Guy, <laughs> a comedy about a man who's raped by a woman. Oh, dear. And either people don't believe him or don't think there's a problem with it. Oh, boy. Starring Paul Sorvino and Adam Arkin. Yeah, I think I would have been watching MASH. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was not a synopsis I wanted to come across this close to watching Bloom in Love. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Ooh. The 70s, ladies and gentlemen. Yep. In 1951, Virginia Hill was called before the Congressional Kefauver hearings to testify about her connections with organized crime. As she dodges questions and tries not to incriminate herself, we flash back to Virginia's life story. Beginning in a small town in Kentucky, teenage Virginia quickly developed a knack for getting boys to give her money and gifts, and when she's had enough of her father's constant drunken abuse, she and her childhood friend Leroy, an awkward and easily impressionable boy, flee to the big city of Chicago. As a waitress, she catches the eye of mafia financier Leo Ritchie, who brings her into his operation to manipulate horse track winnings. It's not long before Virginia starts rising in the ranks as a courier for ruthless mob boss Nick Rubano. She doesn't love Leo, but falls into a relationship as she's drawn by the glamour of money and the lifestyle of the elite, even though she has doubts about how Leroy is also falling under the sway of mob leaders. She ultimately parts with Leo, even the two remain loyal as friends. She hopes to be done with mob errands, but Nick refuses to let go and sends Virginia, with Leroy in tow, out to Hollywood to hobnob with the celebrities and wealthy producers as he starts moving his operations out west. Among those she meets is rival mobster Ben Bugsy Siegel. Virginia and Ben quickly catch one another's eye and fall into a passionate affair. He pulls her into his dream of building the first casino hotel in the barren deserts of Las Vegas, Nevada, where gambling is legal, and Virginia makes a mistake by investing money from Nick's operations into the building of Ben's hotel. Though Ben is initially furious to learn of Virginia's ties to Nick, they keep moving forward, building and dreaming and talking about marriage. Unfortunately, Nick has caught wind of where his money has gone, and after Leroy is found viciously beaten, Nick demands a quick return of his investment, and even Leo shows up in an attempt to get Virginia to back out of it all. The day of the grand opening arrives and nobody shows. The business is a bomb. The night devolves into Ben beating Virginia and her downing a bottle of sleeping pills. The two reconcile in her hospital room, and it's decided she should clear her head with a trip to Paris, with him promising to join her soon after. As she flies out, Ben meets with Nick, who demands to be given ownership of the casino. Ben refuses. That night, as Ben packs and struggles to get through to Virginia over a broken phone connection, he's gunned down in his bedroom suite. Virginia is devastated. Back in the present of 1951, she leaves the hearings, believing she danced around incriminating herself or any associates, but her lawyer reveals she actually gave the government enough data to figure out how much she owes in unpaid taxes, and they seize her house and possessions. In disguise, Virginia watches from the back as everything she owns is sold off in lowball bids to rabid gossip hounds. She meets Leo and they briefly reconnect. 
When a woman discovers that she accidentally bought the wedding ring that Virginia gave to Ben, Virginia reveals herself and demands the ring back, with Leo throwing money at the suddenly kicked up price as he hurries Virginia away. The two part ways outside and Virginia walks off alone. A title card reveals she took her own life in 1966. So Angie, do you recommend the Virginia Hill story? No. I mean, it's not like a bad movie, but given that it's not exactly easy to find and I wouldn't say it's worth the effort of tracking it down. It's just kind of average and forgettable, I think, is the best way I would describe it. Yeah, I don't recommend it either. I just think it's too sparse. Mm-hmm. It's almost too tight to the point where it just kind of breezes through everything really quickly. Right. It kind of reminds me of the sort of style that John Carpenter took with Elvis and that it's like, here's all of the important story beats of this person's life. Yes. But nothing to really make you feel or care or worry. There's no meat to it. Right. Thankfully, this was half the length of Elvis. Right. Because, <laughs> yeah, we should mention, this aired in a 90-minute slot and is only 74 minutes without commercials. Yeah, it's pretty brisk. It is. And, I mean, it's not terribly made. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like it's made by a complete amateur. There's a couple little moments, but we can get yeah. into those. But it doesn't feel like it's made by someone who's never had any work in the industry before, I should say. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. And the cast isn't bad, even if they're a little off at times. Mm-hmm. Its main thing is it's just so sparse and brisk and cheap. I mean, there's yeah. no scale. I mean, like, she's in Hollywood, but you don't see any of the Hollywood elite. You don't see Hollywood. You don't see any of that. You know, right. the Vegas casino you barely see except for a foyer Mm -hmm. and it emotionally it'll be very kind of understated and dry and then all of a sudden it's like oh they're screaming at each other and it's like Mm -hmm. wow like y'all really don't know how to ramp this up to a right spot you know right and harvey was pretty predictable in his yell yell slap yell (laughs) yell slap (laughs) i guess it helped her know when to dodge yeah Overall, what did you think of like the general story of Virginia Hill? Is there anything interesting about it? Not particularly. It seemed like a fairly standard thing of like, well, for one thing, because she bounced between all of these guys so quickly. Then, of course, oh, you know, it's a mafia thing and she's in an abusive relationship. You know what I mean? Like, it's such Mm -hmm. a standard of that genre that I wouldn't say like this is somebody like I'd really want to track down the biography and read more in depth about. Yeah. Well, I don't want to start diving into all the differences now, but I will just (laughs) say this. This is a highly fictionalized version of her life. To be fair, the biography I read was written in the 90s when a whole lot more information had come out by then. Okay. Whereas this movie was eight years after she died. Mm Mm-hmm. I did notice, like, just checking Wikipedia, it was like, wait, she was from Alabama, not Kentucky. Like, weird little things like that. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, and Leroy is non-existent. She actually had a brother named Chick. Okay. And it's like, well, why can't you just have that be her brother? They have that weird line of, no, we just adopted each other. Yeah. I'm wondering if it's because a lot of the other people were still alive at the time. Maybe so, because they changed some names too, right? Oh, they changed a lot of the names. Yeah. 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 I mean, like Leo is based on someone, but they changed the name. Nick is based on someone that they changed. I mean, like by the time that biography came out, all those people were dead. Mm-hmm. But when this came out, a lot of those people were still active. A lot of them still had tie. I mean, they even changed the name of the casino, which was the Flamingo. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of those people still had ties and ownership in it. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that makes a lot of sense then. Yeah. 
But even if you just change the names, like a lot of the aspects of the story, they're not at all what actually happened. <laughs> so, well, I mean, let's just start with the character of Virginia. What, what did you think of the character and especially the performance by Diane Cannon? She felt really understated is the word I kept coming back to. Just very yeah. subtle. Every now and then, particularly in, I guess, the courtroom scene, she would show a little bit of charm. But not overwhelmingly so, like not the kind of thing where you would go, oh, I could see why all these guys would fall for her and be willing to give her all these things and ask her to help them out in this kind of way, you know? Right. And the real life Virginia Hill was brash, commanding. She swore and insulted everyone left and right. (laughs) She would literally just dive in and start beating the crap out of people. And it's weird that the character that they're playing here is kind of played as noble and (laughs) sweet and... Not innocent, but Mm -hmm. she's not a bad person. Right. Do you think, because she had children in real life, you think it was a matter of they were afraid that the children might sue if they presented her a little too risque or, I mean, I don't know. I don't know because her one son, she only had the one son, was Mm -hmm. living in Europe. Okay. Because, yeah, they cut out the whole story about how she married a Swedish ski instructor and then just moved to Europe for 20 years. Yeah. I mean, it could just be that there wasn't much information available outside the Kefauver. I mean, the Kefauver hearings were a real thing. Mm -hmm. And the actual full transcripts and recordings are available. Yeah. It's weird that this is how they interpreted that character. Because in, like, the real hearings, she's just, like, dodging questions and spitting insults and all that stuff. And Mm -hmm. here Diane Cannon's playing her is like... Well, I don't know. I, I I don't think they were the mobsters. No, they they couldn't have been mobsters. Yeah, you know? she was being a little more like bimbo. Yeah. And maybe it was supposed to be an act that she was playing for the sake of the court. But you sent me that one clip of her and it was like, wow, this is a very different woman. <laughs> I mean, like, and yeah, at that court hearing, as she would leave, she would like shout to the reporters, I hope you all fucking die in a hail of bullets. <laughs> kind of Damn. <laughs> So, I mean, that's actually what helped her rise the ranks, where she was extremely take-no-nonsense. Makes sense. And she was very good at using and manipulating people. Mm. And to be fair, she actually did that to her brother a lot, too. <laughs> wow. Yeah, her brother got married. She didn't approve of it. She forced him to divorce her a week later. Wow. So somebody needs to make a Virginia Hill story that's a little more yeah. accurate. I know, like, they made that Bugsy movie. I don't know if... Bugsy, the Warren Beatty one, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if that had more of a accurate interpretation. I haven't seen it. I was debating if I wanted to in prep for this, but I mm-hmm. was like, let's just stick to this one for now. Yeah. If I see it, I'll leave a comment on the post for this one. So. <laughs> there you go. So it's an interesting life story, and it's like, and they really dodge around the fact that, you know, she was a prostitute for a while. Mm. That's how she learned how to get money from people and get favors and gifts from people. And the first big connection she has in the movie is Leo. Mm -hmm. What do you think of the character of Leo? He's fine. I mean, it's interesting that for a thing about gangsters, he particularly seems like very soft-spoken. Like, obviously, he's out to make a living, but he's certainly not the tough guy that you generally think of when you think about somebody running that kind of scheme. Right. He's based on a real guy who's an accountant. He was the financier of the mob. He ran the books. Oh, okay. So he was not like the guy who goes out and breaks heads and busts knees. He just managed the books. Gotcha. And Virginia was part of people that he would use to fix horse races Mm -hmm. in order to, like, eventually you get half, you get half, you know, that kind of thing. 
What's interesting is they actually do have kind of a romance between them where, you know, she's not in love with him, but he obviously is in love with her. Right. The real character, Joe Epstein, was very likely gay and they never had any romantic connection. In fact, they were just really good friends. Okay. Like up until a couple of years before she died, she burned all bridges in her last few years, but he was like mm-hmm. one of the last people to stick with her. Gotcha. What was interesting about it is that opening bit where it's like just Leo talking to the camera yeah. about Virginia Hill. That was because the hearings were a good enough framing device to set up this story that we didn't really need a guy talking to the camera. And especially since it's never revisited or anything, it was like a little, yeah. hmm, okay. If you could revisit that at the end instead of the title card that she took her own life. Like, yeah. he's the last person to see her in the movie. Right, right. To have him kind of send us off again. Yeah, that title card was so abrupt and it was like, let's make sure we end this movie on a serious downer. <laughs> like, okay. By the way, Virginia Hill did not commit suicide. <laughs> Well, it was a sleeping pill overdose? No. While in Europe, she went to visit in Rome Joe Adonis, who was a gangster that she was in a relationship before Bugsy Siegel. Okay. And this was after she was basically threatening everyone that she was going to release the books that she's kept. Because mm. she was barred from America, mm-hmm. and she was trying to set up a deal with the IRS in order to get her citizenship back. Oh, okay. No one knows why, because everyone in the U.S. hated her by that point. <laughs> and she basically went to talk to him to demand money. And two days later was found in the woods, dead of an overdose of a drug that she never owned or never had, with Mm. a hastily written suicide note next to her. So, yeah, probably not a suicide. It's kind of dancing around a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Again, this is not a movie. I I didn't really find the Virginia Hill story, the real one, that interesting, Mm -hmm. just because I don't like gangster stories and everyone was kind of repellent. Right. But this is not a movie that I would say, go here if you want to know the story. Yeah, obviously not. If you want to see a kind of mediocre gangster film, then yeah, but (laughs) not very accurate. What do you think of Harvey Keitel as Bugsy Siegel? I do think that even in a little movie like this where, you know, there isn't necessarily a whole lot for him to do, he does still have a really great presence and, you know, I don't know how accurate he's playing the character, but he plays it well, I think. It's not inaccurate, but Bugsy was a lot more extreme. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know if you've ever seen or heard of the famous scene in Goodfellas where it's like a poker game and Joe Pesci just straight up murders someone at the poker table. I've heard of it. I haven't seen it. Yeah. That's based on something that Bugsy Siegel did. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess that explains why he randomly just starts hitting on her sometimes. Yeah. And and the thing is, by the end of their relationship, Bugsy and Virginia Hill were on the outs Mm. because he had sunk everything he had. He was a gambling addict who would gamble at his own casinos and then skim money to cover up the debt. Gotcha. When she fled off to Paris the night before, he had beaten and raped her Mm. because she called him a worthless know-nothing. Because it seemed like, and they didn't really do a good job of presenting it, but it almost kind of seemed like she fled because she didn't want to be around when he was murdered as if she knew about it. Right. Like that was how the beginning at least set it up. I didn't feel like they really led to that in the story itself. No, she was just leaving him. Mm -hmm. And the two of them were just completely on the outs. He was killed two weeks later. Okay. He was not returning to her. There was not a broken connection on the phone line. (laughs) He was actually in the living room of the house that they had shared and had friends over. And someone with a semi-automatic machine gun literally fired through the front window. Uh, Okay. Literally filled the room with bullets and several of them hit him. So Mm. it's like nothing. (laughs) This is how it happened. You mean he wasn't clutching the ring and then slowly (laughs) letting it go? No. That was one of those moments that I'm kind of like, 
I don't know if that was Joel's choice or cinematographer. I don't know, but it was like, okay. There was a ring. They had been talking about getting married. And during the auction, she was not present for the auction. Mm -hmm. But it was later discovered that this cheap looking ring that was covered in paint, Hmm. when they cleaned it was a diamond ring. And she realized that it was their engagement ring that while they were working on the hotel, had gotten paint on it. And she always meant to get it clean, but just ended up getting tucked away somewhere. Oh, okay. And she attempted to buy it back, but was not successful. Okay. A little dramatic license. Yes. How well do you think it's conveyed in the film that Bugsy Siegel was one of the people directly responsible for what Vegas is today? I mean, I think they at least suggest that because it seems like Vegas certainly wasn't much of a thing yet when he decided to build that hotel. Right. So, I mean, I think they kind of show that. But then, of course, they also present it like the hotel was a complete failure. So maybe you wouldn't necessarily think that that was definitely going to lead up to the successful version of Vegas. Right. And it was actually a failure at first. It took like six months before it really started to work, but Mm. it did fail. And part of that was because he opened before they had the hotel ready. Okay. And the other part was there was a massive rainstorm and all the nearby airports in Nevada at the time had not had paved runways yet. So it was all mud. Okay. So that makes perfect sense why people wouldn't be there at the airport. Right. Whereas they make it look like nobody wants to come because they don't like them or something. Right. That whole scene with the two girls in the coat check area. Yeah. It's like, what are you doing? (laughs) Why are you working at this hotel if you hate the people who are running it? It's a job. Why are you openly insulting one of the co-owners? Like, it was just such a, like, what a weird choice to have in the middle of this film. Speaking of, so what do you think about Joel Schumacher as a screenwriter? (laughs) (laughs) Certainly uh, not quite there yet in terms of dialogue or properly moving a story along. You know, when you film a nice little montage and then you have the next line be, So how long have we been together now? Yeah. (laughs) There are better ways to do that. I don't know. Has it been six months already? It's gone by so fast. (laughs) So yeah, definitely you can see this is very early on and he hasn't quite perfected everything yet. Yeah. And I want to believe also it was a project that probably had a lot of limitations in terms of budget and schedule. Sure. Again, he probably was a little overwhelmed with everything that was going on because first time being in charge of a movie. Mm -hmm. Again, I would love to hear what his memories are on this, but sadly, I haven't been able to find any interviews of it. I don't think it's terrible writing. I mean, there are some good exchanges, some good dialogue. I I think some of the scenes are nice, Mm -hmm. but it just doesn't flow very well. Right. I think the Elvis comparison was actually quite good (laughs) because it has that same kind of, let's just jump from this point in their life to this point in their life. Right. It's like, I'm just having dinner with this guy for the first time. Let me tell him about all of my hopes and dreams and what I want to be known as as a person. Or my best friend that I grew up with and adopted each other. He calls me to let me know that the love of my life is dead. And then he just hangs up the phone instead of continuing to talk to me and comfort me. You know, it's like just like little things like that, that it's like, stop and think for a second on whether or not this is the best way to present these ideas. Right. It feels a bit half-baked. Yeah. And that's where it's going to be interesting to get to Sparkle and and Car Wash, because I actually have his scripts. So it'll be interesting to see what they're like on paper. Okay. And again, those were written before this. Mm -hmm. It's going to be interesting to see what his work is like as a writer. Mm -hmm. But I mean, yeah, the whole thing with Nevada, though, I mean, they like 
like almost skip over Hollywood. He was hugely involved in Hollywood because okay. it's like both sides, both the New York and Chicago mobs were trying to get a foothold in Hollywood. Mm. They were taking over all the various unions and, and all that stuff and basically milking studios for as much money as they can. They didn't really seem too interested in the more technical aspects of no. any of it. Yeah, And Bugsy was one of the most successful because he was a very good looking guy who had kind of movie star good looks. He was a rough and tumble guy, but mm. he had an allure to him that got him invites to a lot of parties. And again, had that kind of fake Countess thing. <laughs> and one of the interesting connections with Scarface is one of his best friends, quote unquote best friends, because Bugsy treated him like shit his entire life, mm. was George Raft, the actor who was in Scarface as Scarface's lieutenant who falls in love with his sister. And he was the infamous one in that movie who was the gangster who was always flipping a coin, who became the iconic image of a gangster flipping a mm. coin. Okay. And Bugsy Siegel always wanted to be a Hollywood leading man, and George Raft always wanted to be a gangster. <laughs> and so the two became friends, and Bugsy took advantage of it and like milked Raft for as much money as he could. Virginia and Raft were having an affair behind Bugsy's back. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of drama you could explore there. Yeah. And then that was when a lot of the government investigations started breaking down on Hollywood, that he was the one who had the idea of moving a lot of operations to Vegas. The Flamingo Hotel was already in the works at the time, and other people had already created it and started working on it, but he kind of swooped in and took it over. Okay. And it was in that wake that all the other mob guys were like, hey, we want in on this too. <laughs> and that's literally how Vegas happened. Okay. It just grew out of that. Hmm. Got one hotel, then you got three hotels, <laughs> then you got a city, <laughs> then you got Dancing Elvis and a Pyramid, and Celine Dion four nights a week. Blue Man Group. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, I want to see Joel Schumacher's The Blue Man Group. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> All black lights. <laughs> it would fit together well. Yeah. So, I'm trying to think of other things to talk about yeah. this movie because there isn't that much. No, it's funny because, you know, looking at like the cast list and stuff and I was like, oh, Robbie Benson. But yeah, he's there. He's okay. Yeah, I was shocked to look him up. That's Beast? Really? Yeah. <laughs> My mom loved Robbie Benson, so it was like the moment I saw him, I'm like, oh! <laughs> and then the guy who played Nick, I can't think of... Yeah, John Vernon. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's a pretty classic actor, too, and he's got a good presence. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you need a mob heavy, he's not a bad Right, yet. right. Dean Warmer from Animal House. I mean, like I said, it's okay. It's not terrible. And again, it's so sparse. Right, right. I mean, I like bits like Bugsy taking on Mousy in the sauna, you know? Mm. That was kind of a nice scene. Or I also loved the Kefauver hearings. It's Dennis the Menace's dad. <laughs> That's why I know that guy. And comedian Conrad Jenis. <laughs> But yeah, that guy with the glasses, that's, mm -hmm. uh, oh, Dennis. <laughs> yeah, I'm like sitting there, I'm like, I know this dude. I've totally seen this dude. Otherwise, there's just not much to it. So what did you think of Joel Schumacher as a director? I guess I feel like this almost isn't a fair thing to judge. You know, right. I mean, like there clearly just isn't that much there. Like I said, the whole like zooming in on the hand as it kind of jerked and then dropped the ring and early on. Push it with your thumb. Push it with your thumb. <laughs> <laughs> When, like, they go from the hearing to the flashback for the first time, they, like, overlay this, not quite black and white, but, like, one side's dark and the other side's light on her face, and then it goes to the radio, and it's like, I don't really think you're getting across what you want to get across there. Right. 
But, you know, I mean, for a first film especially, you know, it's not like the kind of thing where you're like, ooh, how did this guy even have a career? It's just kind of like, okay, yeah, he's learning. I think this was definitely a foot-in-the-door opportunity. Yeah. I think this was already an existing project that they had that they needed someone on. Yeah, I'm not judging his career, but it's a very (laughs) mediocre start. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, there are some decent little flourishes. Like, while it doesn't really make sense narratively, I actually do like the effect of Leo just suddenly talking to the camera. It has a nice feel to it. Mm -hmm. I like the montage of them in the desert starting to build. Yeah, that was well done. I mean, overall, I think the film is decently enough shot and edited and everything, but it's directed very much like television. It's done a very simple, you got your master shot, you got your coverage of close-ups, and you just kind of put the scene together in editing. There's no real, like, specific flow to any of the scenes. There's Mm -hmm. no, like, significant directorial flourishes or anything. It's just directed in a very standard format. Right. It's not badly done. And it may be the kind of thing where he doesn't talk about it much because maybe they filmed it, you know, fairly quickly. Yeah. Again, it was low budget, done on a TV schedule. Right. A good way for him to get his foot in the door, and he probably hasn't thought much about it since. Right. And that's where it's going to be interesting to get to Amateur Night at the Dixie Bar and Grill, where it's one night at a bar. So it's a single location. Mm -hmm. You don't have to worry about telling this long, decade-spanning story. Bottle episode of a film. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I think this type of style will probably be better fitting something like that compared to a Mm -hmm. compressed minimalist biopic. Right, right. And again, it's like the real story of Virginia Hill is the Hollywood connections and the rise of Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. And neither of those is really the focus. It's just pure stuff that happened. Yeah. I take back from the things that you've told me from reading the book, I actually would like to see someone try to make this again, but do it accurately. (laughs) Well, that's where I'm going to be curious to check out Bugsy. Yeah, yeah. Because I know Annette Bening is Virginia Hill, and that was actually the film that led to them getting married. Yes. Her and Warren Beatty. Right. And I do just want to say, Bugsy's Baby, the biography I read by Andy Edmonds. Mm. I mean, it wasn't a bad book. It was pretty quick. It was just like 250 pages. Okay. It covered a lot. It had a lot of really interesting info. It's a little tabloidy in terms of like, and for the first time, we can reveal the truth of what really happened. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't cite any of its sources largely because she actually just interviewed a bunch of gangsters who didn't want to be cited (laughs) because they were still alive and they wanted to keep it that way. Sure. But I mean, like she actually got to read through the diary of Virginia Hill, which was not a diary. It was her bookkeeping record of just like financial exchanges and all that stuff. Right, right. So it really opened up a lot of how a lot of the industry was run. How did these characters all tie into each other? And Mm -hmm. it was interesting to learn, even though I don't really care that much about the subject. It was a pretty breezy and easy book to get through. Okay. And again, it was interesting as like a follow-up to Scarface of like, Mm -hmm. here's the Capone era, here's post Capone. (laughs) And then I guess like the Scarface remake is, and here's the Columbians. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. (laughs) All played by white people. (laughs) (laughs) And Chainsaw. (laughs) I want to watch that movie again now for some reason. (laughs) I wonder why. I mean, it'll be interesting to see where Joel goes from here, because it's yeah. a very modest start. Mm-hmm. I already know he makes better movies than this. Right. <laughs> but thinking about it, thinking about what I've seen of his films, the comment that I made on the style is not that unfitting of he shoots things well, but he does shoot a lot in like the TV style of, you know, get your master wide shot, get your close ups, and then just kind of assemble the scene in editing. Mm-hmm. It's not like that flow from this shot leads to this shot to this shot, you know, where you have a scene literally a directorial guide through a scene. Mm-hmm. 
But that style is still a perfectly fine style that's especially good if you're doing actor-heavy pieces, because then actors can just play out the scene in full, and then you can assemble it in editing. Right, right. And I think that's probably why he's become known as a director that a lot of actors like to work with. Makes sense. Up to a point. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like, even the Batman movies, for all of their crazy colors and Canton angles, were still shot in that similar style. Mm -hmm. That'll be interesting to see is, like, are there any, like, directorial flourishes that will ever emerge? Yeah. I don't know. Trying to think, is there anything else you want to bring up on Virginia Hill? <laughs> um, I guess the only thing I would say is that I do think that Diane and Harvey Keitel had a pretty good chemistry together. But like I said, though, they kind of go from like zero to 60 sometimes yeah. without warning. In the moments when they are happy together and everything, I think they do work together really well. There were some potential there of moments where I was like, oh, this is kind of sweet, even though they're not the most honest of people. (laughs) No. And again, like the last few months of their relationship would just be them in screaming matches, throwing things around the room. Sure. The night usually ended with him raping her. Mm. Yeah, they did not have a very healthy romantic relationship. Well, I'm very happy they didn't show that. Right. And turn it into a comedy, <laughs> right. as some 70s seem to want to do. But yeah, mostly, like I said, talking about the actors, I think they worked well yeah. together for what they were doing. But what's interesting is Virginia Hill was kind of a brash, very loud, very vulgar, shouted insults and stuff. Mm-hmm. I've seen Diane Cannon play those roles. Yeah. That's actually the character that she was in The Last of Sheila. She was the very loud, flamboyant character Mm, in the group. Yeah. She wasn't cruel, but Diane can can be that. In fact, that's why it was so weird seeing her so subdued in this movie, because most of the films I've seen her, and she's a very boisterous, very energetic presence. Yeah, like I said, to me, it almost seems like somebody was worried about getting sued. Right, yeah. And then also that, like, when we flash back to Virginia Hill as a teenager, she still looks like what (laughs) Diane Cannon was at the time, a woman in her late 30s with naturally gray hair. (laughs) They did nothing to cover that. Not really, no. no. Put her in a more country bumpkin dress. That's about the only difference. Yeah. And that's not to take away from her. She's a very lovely woman. Mm-hmm. But it was some interesting choices. Again, that was probably just done on the fly. Yeah. And what's interesting is that this takes place right in the middle of when she had her three Oscar nominations during the 70s. Oh, wow. 1969, she was nominated for Bob and Ted and Carol and Alice. Mm-hmm. And then she had a short film that she wrote and directed called Number One, which she was hmm. nominated for. And then in the late 70s, I can't remember what the title is, but she was also nominated again. She got three Oscar nominations, one for director. Oh, wow. I even saw like a few old ads. I was trying to look up like, were there any old reviews from the time when this came out? I could only find a couple of ads saying, Diane Cannon and her TV debut, (laughs) which was a lie because she worked in television in the late 50s and 60s. Well, I guess because it was a starring role, they figured they could get away with it. Right. So, I mean, she was a pretty big get at the time. Mm -hmm. Harvey Keitel... This was one year after Mean Streets, him and Scorsese debuting together. Okay. They were both pretty big gets for the time. Mm -hmm. But even then, as like a kind of historical artifact, you know, maybe check it out if you're a fan. If you're a fan of Harvey Keitel, I think it's worth checking out. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. It's kind of neat seeing him as this really clean cut, polished gangster, Mm -hmm. because I'm used to him being kind of more rough. Right, yeah, he's definitely got much more of a pretty boy look in this than I usually think of him as. It is a hard film to recommend, and Mm -hmm. I just, I can't. Don't even really feel bad about that. Because no. again, it was, you know, it's first film, cheap, done on the fly. Right. I'd like to learn some more about the making of it, but <laughs> hey, I bought the DVD that I'm never going to watch. <laughs> <laughs> you did your part. <laughs> 
I'm like even trying to be like, well, what about the music? I don't remember. It, I mean. It was there. Right, right. Pretty much. Yep. Yeah. The special effects were okay, I guess, when Leroy got all beat up and, you know, it didn't look awful. The puffy eye, yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Why would you do that to him after he got his teeth fixed? <laughs> I even kind of like that bit with Mousy in the sauna where it's like Bugsy's trying to get information out of him and doesn't realize he's strangling him. Right. He's like, oh, oh sorry, Mousy. And I can't even tell. Does that mean he's alive or is he dead? I don't know. I think it means he's dead. Yeah. I guess that was maybe some of their attempt to show how volatile Bugsy was that he could strangle yeah. a man without even realizing it. That's best you could do on TV standards. Right, right. <laughs> And then I did also like John Vernon as Nick, mm. his deep love of cheesecake. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they establish it in one scene, and then it suddenly comes up as he's like eating the casino's cheesecake. And it's like, does he just travel around and judge people based on the quality of their cheesecake? Apparently, it's a very serious thing for some New Yorkers. <laughs> <laughs> you put strawberries on your cheesecake? You don't expect to wake up tomorrow morning, do you? <laughs> Mm-mm. But yeah, otherwise I don't have anything else. Yeah. I think we kind of already said our final thoughts. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> we're off to a rousing start. Well, you know, I think it's the material we're working with. Exactly. Yeah. This isn't Dark Star. No. <laughs> well, to be fair, it is Resurrection of Bronco Billy, but... <laughs> so yeah, I think that's... You know, <laughs> unless you can think of anything else... <laughs> I think that's going to bring Virginia Hill to a close. Uh, here, I'll just say it this way. I'm I'm looking forward to seeing some more films that he had much more direct involvement in development yeah. of. There you go. <laughs> and again, the next two films recovering are those two spec scripts that he wrote on his own. Right, right. I'm going to be curious to see how he is as a storyteller. Because mm-hmm. again, what I'm seeing here, the writing isn't bad. It's just choppy and rushed. And again, right. probably had a ton of limitations. Yeah. And takes liberties like crazy. <laughs> That's actually going to be an interesting thing is when we get to stuff like Veronica Guerin, where it's also based on a true story mm. of, again, seeing how closely will he actually stick to the true story. <laughs> And I guess, you know, with this too, since he was technically a second draft or whatever of someone else's script, you don't know if he made the changes or she did or, you know what I mean? Right, exactly. What came from whose draft? Right. It's a modest start, but it still has me curious to see where we go from here. Yep. Can only go up. Mostly because we've already committed to this. getting pessimistic this early now i already love the guy just for meeting his interviews i'm gonna give him the benefit of the doubt okay i was gonna say like (laughs) come on i feel like you can't really judge on this you know it was clearly just a job not a passion project again i'd love to just hear the stories behind him Mm -hmm. but again it's like whenever he's asked about like his early tv movies he always goes to amateur night at the dixie bar and grill and not this one (laughs) i'm guessing it was just a foot in the door opportunity Mm -hmm. more than it was a I'm going to be a filmmaker type of. Right. It was, I wrote these scripts. People don't want to let me direct them. Maybe if I have a little directing experience, then I'll be able to direct my own films. Yeah. That kind of thing. I wonder if doing the TV movie would be enough to get your DGA card. Might be. Hmm. I don't know what the rules were in the 70s, but that might have gotten him in the guild too. Right. Right. And again, that amateur at the Dixie Bar and Grill wouldn't happen for another five years. Wow. Okay. Even though he had been offered two films mm-hmm. at NBC. Well, here's one. See you in five years. <laughs> again, there might be a story there. 
Otherwise, yeah, I don't have anything else. Nope. I'm, I'm pretty much done with Virginia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I guess that brings Virginia Hill to a close. Yep. Thank you, Angie. Thank you. For <laughs> committing to this long project that's off to a rising start. <laughs> Humble beginnings, just like Joel himself. Yes, yes. Oh, good point. Yeah. I will say I enjoyed it more than two of the films that he was a costume designer on. <laughs> well, that's something. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's pretty easy to be better than Killer Bees. Right. And it's also pretty easy to not be as repugnant as Bloom and Love. Yeah, yeah. That's true. That may not be yeah. a very fair judgment. That's just... <laughs> <No>. <laughs> It's not saying much. Yeah. Well, and wherever we go from here, it's all Woody Allen's fault. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, everybody. Good night. For additional episodes or to leave a comment, please visit schumacast.blogspot.com. That's S-C-H-U-M-A-C-A-S-T dot blogspot.com. Our opening song, Letter, and our closing song, Vein Blossom, were both created by Jack Locke and are used with permission. To hear more, please visit jacklocke.com. That's J-A-K-L-O-C-K-E dot com. Schumacast is in no way affiliated with Joel Schumacher or the copyright holders of the films discussed. All rights are reserved and no infringement is intended.